Thanks for tuning in. I'm Shelby. And I'm Renee. And you're watching The Creepy Burrito. serial killer comes about by circumstances and like a, a recipe, poverty, drugs, child abuse. These things, you know, are, contribute to a person, uh, to a person's frustration and anger. And, uh, and uh, at some point in life, he explodes. Welcome back, everyone. I hope Richard Ramirez Part 1 left you hungry for more blood, because today there's going to be a lot more of it. If you didn't listen to Part 1, I would recommend jumping back. Give it a listen. We covered the ingredients that made this bloodthirsty sociopath. His first taste for blood that led to his 1985 killing spree that he would become famous for. On March 17, 1985, just nine months after murdering 79-year-old Jenny Van Cow, he was ready to strike again. In preparation to quench his bloodthirst, he decided to buy a 22 caliber handgun. He stopped at a gas station to get a new car of the week, which just so happened to be a Toyota that he stole while the owner was in paying for gas. So, that's shitty. I mean, the best car to steal is one that just got filled with gas. So like, <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> I fucking get it. Like, that's smart as hell. Like, mm-hmm. not giving him any credit because he's a piece of shit and mm-hmm. doesn't deserve credit for anything he's ever done in his life. But actually, if you're going to steal a car, might as well steal one that has a shit ton of gas in it. Right. But anyways, so he sped off into the night, probably blaring ACDC Highway to Hell album to get him in the mood, flexing his ACDC hat, on the prowl, ready to give in to his dark urges. Cruising down the San Bernard... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just immediately. Cruising down the street in my six-fold. Stop! Cruising down the street in my stolen Toyota. Thanks. <laughs> Cruising down the San Bernardino freeway, he sets his sight on a gold Camaro, being driven by 22-year-old Maria Hernandez heading home after a dinner date with her boyfriend unbeknownst to her, that her night was about to take a turn. Maria pulls up to her condo. As she opens up her garage to pull in her car, Richard parks his car, and in full stealth mode, sneaks inside the garage as the door is coming down, knocking off his hat. She heard a noise from behind her, and she turns to see what it was, and saw Richard standing there, pointing a gun at her, and starts coming at her. Fuck that. Yeah, it's the fucking scariest. And plus that just stench just coming at oh you with God. high, high veracity. She probably didn't turn around because she heard a noise. She probably turned around because she's like, what the fuck is that smell? I don't have a cat in my garage. Why does it smell like cat shit in here? It smells like a piece of shit in here. But yeah, so like he's coming at her. He doesn't say anything. Um, oh, he's literally just pointing a gun and walking towards her in silence. Mm-hmm. That's even more like, terrifying than someone running shouting up towards at you. her, like with the gun in his hand, pointed it at her face. Didn't say anything. Not saying to give her money, items, like to steal, 
or that he's going to kill her or anything like that. Jesus. Like, he just runs up to her, doesn't say anything, points the gun at her face, and shot. To protect herself, she brought her hands up to yeah. her face because he's pointing a gun in her fucking face. Also, it's just instinctual. Yeah, so trying to, like, protect herself. Now, most of the time, that may not be very much help to a stop gun. a gun yeah, from shooting you in the face. But miraculously, the bullet ricocheted off the keys. Holy shit. Yeah. Talk about fucking lucky. Yeah. Well, not lucky that you have Richard Ramirez in your fucking garage creeping on you and trying to kill you and shoot you in the face, but... Talk about the right placement at the right time. <sighs> yeah. Perfect yeah. placement of those fucking keys. Um, it, it did still shoot her hand, like, when it ricocheted, but... She used that to her advantage because mm-hmm. she was bleeding from her hand mm-hmm. and she still fell to the ground and played dead. That's what I'd do. Mm, exactly. Richard then decides to go into her condo under the assumption that she was dead. Unfortunately, Maria had a roommate. Her name was Dale Okazaki. She was in the kitchen whenever she heard the gunshot. When she heard the gunshot, Dale had hid behind the counter to take cover as Richard Ramirez had entered into their home. Mm-hmm. Like a fucking creep, he waits there silently, and then when Dale peeks her head out from the counter to see if it's clear, Richard fires a shot right into her forehead, killing Dale Okazaki instantly. While Richard is inside, Maria hears the gunshot and then goes to hide behind a car. Moments later, Richard runs out, sees her hiding behind the car, and points the gun at her. She said, please don't shoot me again. He put the gun down and then bolted off into the night. Driving on the freeway, not even an hour has passed since his last kill when he finds his next target, 30-year-old law student Veronica Yu. He follows her as she takes the exit to Monterey Park from the freeway. Veronica pulls over to the side of the road to let him pass her, so whenever he does pass her, she starts following him and yelling angrily. When he gets to a red light, he stops, gets out, walks back to her car, and starts to tell some bullshit story that he thought that she was someone that he knew. That's why he was following her so closely. But she wasn't biting into any of that fucking story. Like, don't bullshit a fucking bullshitter. Obviously, she isn't in the mood for, like, some sort of bullshit story if she's pissed off enough to pull over and start hunting you down. So, when he realizes that she's not buying into his bullshit... He decides to start pulling her through her car window, but when he couldn't get her out, he opened the passenger side door and shot her right in the side. Being the badass fighter that she was, Veronica tries to run from the car, but then was shot again, falling onto the street crying for help. This fucking asshole yells bitch and then laughs loudly at her as he shot her again before running into his car and speeding off. She was still alive when the first responders arrived, but unfortunately did not survive the trip to the hospital. Little did Richard know that there were witnesses to this whole entire incident. There was a couple watching from their vehicle just down the street. At first, the police department didn't connect those two murders that night, or to the murder of Jenny Vincow that occurred months earlier, since they were all in different jurisdictions. In Jenny's case, they only had a few fingerprints, but trying to manually compare them would have taken the police department years. Criminals back in the day knew that there was a lack of communication in between departments if they were in different jurisdictions, and they would use that to their advantage, jumping around to commit crimes, making it harder for them to be tracked down. 
The Hernandez-Okazaki case was assigned to Detective Carrillo of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Homicide Division. Now, Detective Carrillo was a badass and worked on more than 300 murder cases by this point in his career. Detective Carrillo had previously taken a course with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, understanding that there can be a pattern with serial killers that connect sex and violence. Detective Carrillo did what someone probably should have done earlier, which is reach out to one of the other police departments. He had gotten contact with the Monterey Police Department to exchange information about the case uh, with Hernandez Okazaki and Veronica Yu's case. He started to think that these two cases are linked by the man in black, both being motiveless and random in nature. When the ballistics came back from the bullets in both crime scenes, it was determined that they had both come from the same gun. At this point, Carrillo reaches out to the serial killer expert, Detective Frank Salerno, who is also commonly known as the Bulldog. He was the lead in the task force for the Hillside Strangler murders. Carrillo collected all of the evidence and eyewitness reports to go over it with Frank. The witnesses that had seen the killer, including the survivor Maria, described him as 5'10", thin, with black hair and dark, real scary eyes. He dressed in black in a hat with an ACDC logo that fell off in her garage. Salerno had told Detective Carrillo to start looking into different crime reports and release sex offenders, that it was likely that the suspect had killed before and not tied to earlier crimes. A man does not become a killer overnight. The two murders and an attempted third in one single day attracted the media. Ramirez was described as a curly-haired, bulging eyes, wide-spaced rotting teeth, and introduced the names of the walking killer, the valley intruder, and the screen door intruder. Proudly wearing all of his creeper badges, yearning to be called the night prowler after his favorite ACDC song, the media finally found the name the night stalker. With all those bad names, I'm a bit surprised he didn't, like, start doing some BTK type of shit. Right. Where he's, like, trying to send in, like, notes to get call a good nickname. Yeah. yeah. Like, how about this suggestion? Yeah. Why don't you call me the Night Prowler? Why don't you call me the fucking metal dude that, like, loves ACDC but also has fucking bad breath? Hashtag ACDC fan number one. Why don't you call me the smelly guy? I don't even like screen doors. (laughs) But I digress. Only 10 days after his St. Patrick's Day murders, on March 27th, about 2 a.m., he decides to take a walk down memory lane to visit a home that he had broken into a year prior in Whittier, California. In his stolen Toyota, he pulled up to the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. Through the window, he could see Vincent asleep on the couch in front of the TV, and through another window, saw Maxine was asleep in her bedroom. The doors were locked, but again found his window of opportunity, which by that, again, I mean an actual fucking window, that he could see a crack of light coming out from inside their laundry room. The window was higher up, so he took a garbage can to get himself up high enough to be able to pry it open and sneak into the house. Once he's inside, he makes his way to the den, where Vincent is sleeping on the couch, and shoots him with his 22 caliber handgun. Vincent had tried to get up, but the shot had already caused brain damage, and he fell to the floor. Maxine woke up to her husband's gunshot, but before she could even do anything, Richard was already on top of her. He tied her hands together with a necktie, yelling at her, Where's the money? Don't look at me, bitch. 
As Richard was ransacking the bedroom, she managed to get free from the ties, quickly reaching under the bed where her husband had kept their shotgun. She pulls out the shotgun and points it at Richard, frozen for a second in time. I so badly want to say it all ends here, and she shoots him in the chest, and he's donezo, obliterated. The world would immediately be a better place. But, unfortunately, at the slight implication of him reaching for his gun in his pants, she immediately shoots. But no boom from the boomstick. Oh, no. Just a disappointing click. Vincent, being a good grandparent, had taken out all the ammunition from the shotgun whenever his grandkids were coming over for the weekend to visit. So he's just trying to be a responsible grandparent. And, uh... Richard's the fucking worst. And Richard's the fucking worst. Immediately enraged, he shoots Maxine three times, beats her mercilessly, then grabs a 10-inch carving knife from the kitchen in attempt to cut her heart out as a trophy. But when he couldn't cut through her rib cage, he instead decided to go for her eyes. He cut them out and put them in a jewelry box to take home. He continues to cut her up, around her throat, her stomach, and multiple cuts on her pubic area. He lifted her nightgown with thoughts of necrophilia, but because of his near-death experience, he couldn't get blood pumping in his nether regions to perform. So, he gathered what valuables he could find and left from their front door, drenched in Maxine's blood, to go back to one of the skeezy holes he would frequent, the Cecil Hotel for the night. He later stated when he got back to the hotel, the only thing he didn't sell off was the jewelry box. He looked at her eyes and laughed. The next day, Vincent and Maxine's son Peter had discovered their bodies at the home. When detectives came on the scene, they found Richard's shoe prints on the front patio, matching those that were found on the can used to get into the house and along the flower bed. It brought detectives a step closer to cracking the case because he wore Avia aerobic sneakers, which only... 1,354 pairs were made, and only six pairs were sold in Los Angeles. This distinctive Cinderella slipper linked all of the Night Stalker's crimes together. On May 14th, Richard enters into the home of Bill and Lillian Doy through a, you guessed it, motherfucking window. (laughs) He cut the screen and let himself in. Like a fucking jackass. Right? Lillian was wheelchair-bound, due to a crippling stroke she had a couple years earlier. So her and her husband slept in separate rooms because of that. Richard, as he's done in the past, tries to take the man out first, making his way to the bedroom. Bill hears him, grabs his handgun, but wasn't fast enough. Richard shot Bill in the mouth right above his top lip and beat Bill unconscious. Lillian was awake hearing what was going on in the other room, Vile Richard comes into her room, beats her, and says, Shut up, bitch, or I'll kill you. He immobilized her with thumb cuffs, probably scared of another near-death experience because, you know, poor little fucking Dickie Richie. He just can't catch a break. Bill regains consciousness briefly. Richard beats him unconscious again, but all the blood and violence gets his blood pumping. He returns to Lillian's bedroom to rape this 56-year-old bedbound woman, And Richard did leave without killing Lillian, but Bill has struggled to stay alive. Bill held on long enough to drag himself into Lillian's room after the killer had left to call 911 for his wife. The fire department and the police came, but Bill was pronounced dead at 5.13 in the morning. 
Lillian, even after going through such a traumatic experience, was able to give a description of this vial shit back to the police. Footprints matching the Avia brand shoes found in previous cases were found on their back patio, where the window screen was removed to break in. Detective Carrillo reached out to the detective that was in charge of the case for Bill and Lillian, but they had refused to cooperate or talk about the case since it was out of Carrillo's jurisdiction. So he didn't know about the Avia footprints until later, when in the end they were a match for the previous cases that he was already working. And it was shit like this that had caused delays in this case and trying to bring this killer in. At this point, Richard Ramirez is feeling invincible because he hasn't been caught. And you're going to see his murders in the 1985 killing spree. They start to get closer and closer together. Moving on to our next case. On the night of May 29th, Richard was driving a stolen Mercedes-Benz in Northeast Los Angeles. Randomly selected the house of 81-year-old Mabel Bell, who lived with her sister Nettie Lang. Ironically, crime wasn't something that the sisters were worried about, so they would usually leave their doors unlocked. And if you guys haven't noticed at any point during this, like, lock your fucking doors and windows. This is a PSA. Lock your shit. Mm-hmm. Lock it the fuck up. Lock it the fuck up. Better yet, don't have windows. <laughs> Live in seclusion. Um, concrete everything in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's it. Just live inside concrete, never leave. Yeah. Quarantine forever, quarantine is life. Make sure you have food, though. Love the creepy burrito. <laughs> but anyway, so they would usually leave their doors unlocked. This time, he sneaks through the front door, picks up a hammer as he passes through the house, and then repeatedly hits Nettie in the head. Mabel suffered the same fate shortly after. He had beaten her so badly, her brain matter was scattered all over her room. He then proceeded to rip the wires from the clock on her nightstand to shock her already beaten body. To leave his mark, he had taken a tube of Mabel's lipstick and drew a pentagram on the back of her left thigh and another on the wall right above her head. Then went back into Nettie's room, raped her, and drew a pentagram in her room. To top it all off, he helped himself to their kitchen before letting himself out. He had left behind a trail of empty soft drink cans, two half-eaten bananas, and a toilet full of urine. His two latest victims were found days later by Mabel's handyman. They were still alive, but barely, suffering multiple skull fractures, exposed brain matter, and injuries from the sexual assault. Both were comatose. Nettie was able to recover from the attack, but Mabel had passed away seven days following the attack. The pentagram that he left, it did kind of trip up Detective Carrillo's case since there was no trace of the Avia shoes, and this is the first time that he's left that type of signature at a crime scene. Unable to link the cases at the time, it made it difficult to explain to the department that there was a possibility of multiple killers in the area at the same time, let alone all of these actions being done by one person. Having no pattern made him unpredictable and hard to connect to any other cases. To keep things rolling, he made his way to Burbank, where 41-year-old Carol Kyle and her 11-year-old son Mark were home fast asleep. He used a dog door to reach up and unlock the door to get in. Carol was woken up with a flashlight in her eyes, yelling his favorite words. Wake up, bitch. Don't look at me. Scream, and you're dead. He asked who was in the house. Terrified, she tells him her son is in the other room. He forces her to lead him to her sleeping son. 
He turns on the light, jumps on top of him, and then puts the gun to his face. Carol puts herself in between Richard and her son. Please don't hurt him. Take whatever you want, just don't hurt him, please. He commands, don't look at me, while he handcuffs the mother and son together, and then throws them into a hall closet. After closing them in there, he opens the door back up and asks, You don't have any guns in here, do you? She told him she didn't own any guns, but he frantically searched the house anyways. He returned demanding her jewelry. She promised to give it to him as long as he didn't hurt her children. He uncuffed Carol from her son and locked him back in the closet. He had tied her hands together with pantyhose and then threw her on the bed. Do what I say and you'll both be alright. Carol was then forced to perform fellatio and then sodomized several times. She had described his eyes as demonic and was careful not to do anything to make him angry. After the assault, he grabs a drink from the kitchen, says she wasn't bad for her age, which was 41, and says, You're lucky I'm letting you live. I've killed a lot of people, you know. He left Carol and her son Mark cuffed to the bed frame with the keys on the mantel. No one at the Burbank Police Department linked this assault on Carol Kyle with the other ongoing attacks, so Detective Carrillo was not called or notified of this attack. So, the debauchery and mayhem will just ensue from here. Shortly after, in June, he had tried to break into a house but quickly fled the scene when he heard the couple yell out to each other. He had tried to break into a window that was painted shut, leaving behind his Avia shoe print. He drove aimlessly, not finding anything tickling his dark fancy, until he comes across a six-year-old girl in Eagle Rock the next morning. The little girl was able to escape his grasp, and a witness had then called the police. Bolting for the freeway, he got sloppy, ran a red light, and pulled over by a cop. While the officer is writing the ticket for running the light, he then asks Richard fucking Ramirez, creeper as fuck, that just so happens to match the description for a suspected serial killer and current kidnapper of the morning if he was that guy killing people in their homes, quote-unquote. To which Richard responds, No way, man. When are you guys going to catch that motherfucker? Does that really work most of the time? Like, you just ask criminals, like, hey, is this you? Did you do this? Are you really, uh, actually this guy? Are you? Is this you? Oh, yeah, you got me. (laughs) But then the officer assures Richard Ramirez that they would catch the guy soon, laughing casually, and again asks, are you sure you're not him? (laughs) What a fucking idiot. The officer, when he turns his back, Richard draws a pentagram on the dirt-covered car and then runs by fucking foot. The officer checked in the abandoned car and found a wallet with some cash, a dentist appointment card, and a phone book. When Detective Carrillo had tried to go to the LAPD Northeast Station, yet again, it was another jurisdiction war, the LAPD would not release any information or even let Detective Carrillo check the car for fingerprints until higher-ups approved. By the time they let him see the vehicle, he wasn't able to get any fingerprints or useful evidence. All the police departments in the area wanted to be the ones that caught this big fish, hoarding little nuggets of information. At this point, Detective Carrillo and Salerno had partnered together in hopes to bring this nightmare to an end. They were called in to investigate the murder of Patty Higgins. She was described as a pretty 28-year-old school teacher from Arcadia. The wounds to her neck was a combination of stab and slash marks to the point where she was nearly decapitated, and the evidence showed that she was sodomized. 
The brutality of the crime fit the pattern of the Night Stalker, but there were no shoe prints or gunshots to link to the previous murders. On July 2nd, the Night Stalker struck again, in Arcadia breaking into the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. She was home alone sleeping when he had taken a lamp from her dresser, smashed it on her head, beating and choking her unconscious. He grabbed a 10-inch butcher knife from her kitchen, stabbed her repeatedly in the throat. When detectives Carrillo and Salerno had jumped on the case, they were able to connect Patty and Mary's cases due to the pattern used in the stab slashing around the throat. At this scene, they were able to obtain a large footprint that was present on the rug, as well as a piece of tissue that was found like a stretchy pattern you would see on athletic shoes that matches the pattern of Avia sneakers. This was the evidence that they needed to convince the rest of the department that there was a serial killer committing all of these crimes. With the police becoming more savvy, so did Richard to an extent. He got a police scanner to avoid all the patrolled areas. He did stick around the Arcadia area, and on July 4th, wanted to really push himself and expand his horizons and kill an entire family, starting with 16-year-old Whitney Bennett. Her bedroom window was unlocked, so he crawls in, takes a tire and iron to her head 20 times. Jesus. She starts screaming. To silence her, he pulled the telephone cord from the wall. As he starts to strangle her, he's startled by the sparks coming from the cord and Whitney starts breathing, he immediately leaves the house because he believes Jesus Christ was intervening to save this girl. Whitney woke up in a pool of her own blood, in agonizing pain. She did survive, but it took 478 stitches to close the lacerations on her head. On her bed comforter, there was a clear pattern of his Avia shoe print. Merely three days after Whitney's attack, he murdered Joyce Lucille Nelson stomping on her head so hard that his shoe's imprint was left on her face. The same night, around 3 a.m., he broke into the home of psychiatric nurse Sophie Dickman, did his usual, don't fucking look at me, I'll fucking kill you spiel, and then put his gun in her mouth. She knew immediately who he was from the newspapers. He had handcuffed her and put a pillowcase over her head, demanding to know where the diamonds and money was. She said she didn't have any, and he responds, punching her in the face, and exclaimed, Liar. Where's the jewelry, or you're fucking dead? Then she tells him she has a hiding place in the bathroom. As he's rummaging through her stash, she tried to slip off her diamond ring and hide it. He gets pissed when he catches her trying to hold out, and again punches her in the face. Then he attempted to rape her, but couldn't get an erection to carry out the deed. He went back to demanding to know where her valuables were hidden. She swore to him that was everything that she had, but that wasn't good enough for Richard. He's like, no, swear to Satan. So as a psychiatric nurse throughout this, knowing what he's capable of, she tried to avoid pissing him off by not looking at him, giving up everything she had, and finally swearing to Satan before he made his exit. He had left her handcuffed to the bed and warned her not to scream and said, Remember, I know where you live, and then disappeared off into the night. Even though the Avia footprints were not found on her property, the description did match the stanky-ass Night Stalker. Back at the sheriff's office, the LAPD finally let Detective Carrillo and Salerno in on what information they had found inside the abandoned car when Ramirez was stopped by the cop for running the red light. They reached out to the dentist, 
who had then told him that the appointment was made under the alias name Richard Mena, needing an appointment soon because it was very painful. They stationed a car at the dentist's office to see if Richard would show, but Richard would never return back to that dentist. They were able to send out his dental x-rays and a composite sketch to the dentist in the area in case he decided to seek treatment elsewhere since he was in pain. Little bitchy Richie was in pain. Boo-hoo. The media at the time was exploding with the gruesome details of his reign of terror and made a couple different impacts on the investigation. Everyone seemed to know who the Night Stalker was, causing a flood of tips coming in, and the people in the area finally started locking their windows, doors. There was an increase in gun sales, security systems, and security dogs in the area. Richard Ramirez reveled in the fame from the media, but also made him more conscious of his surroundings since he was a major target of all the police departments in the area. Headed to the upscale city of Glendale with a big new machete, he breaks into the home of the 60-year-old couple, Max and Leela Needling. They were both in bed when Richard slammed the machete into Max's neck, but the blade wasn't sharp enough to decapitate him. Annoyed that real life isn't like Friday the 13th, and he's not Jason, that he can just take someone out in one single blow, Richard decides to shoot Max and Leela in the face to finish them off. Afterwards, using them as practice to continue to cut and stab with his brand new machete. The gunshots brought the police, so he had to bolt out of there quickly. Unsatisfied with his night, he makes his way to Sun Valley, outside of his normal killing zone. He enters the Cavernath home through unlocked sliding glass doors. Mr. Cavernath was killed instantly by a shot to the head, sleeping next to his wife, Somkid. Somkid had to endure terrorizing tactics of ransacking the home, tying up and terrorizing her and her children, repeated rape, and then finished off with swearing to Satan. This case wasn't immediately attached as related to the Night Stalker, since it was outside of his normal territory, but soon he would expand out even further, traveling into Northridge. Where again, he would enter through unlocked sliding glass doors into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. Ramirez had went to their bedroom, and Virginia enters, shouting, Who the hell are you? Get out. Richard responds with his favorite line, Shut up, bitch, and shot her just under her left eye. Chris wakes up to his wife covered in blood, half of her face gone. Richard then aims for Chris and shoots. He then goes to shoot Virginia again, but then misses. Their daughter starts screaming in the next room. Chris, who Richard thought he had finished off, got up and started to fight. With an empty gun, Richard runs back to the sliding glass doors into the night. The ammunition he was using was defective and didn't go through Chris's skull, and for Virginia, the bullet had missed her brain and exited through her neck. After these attacks, he decided it was time to start bulking up his weapon collection. I think it was in the hopes of having an all-out shootout with the police if it came down to it. He had loaded up with an Uzi machine gun, in addition to his 38 pistol and 25 automatic. I think he gave up on his failed machete attempts because you don't see that come back in his remaining attacks of 1985. On August 8th, driving yet another stolen vehicle to Diamond Bar, another unsuspecting town just east of his normal LA territory, he selected the home of Elias and Sakina Abawath. He entered through yet another sliding glass door, making his way to their bedroom. He shoots Elias point blank with a 25 automatic, 
Per his usual cadence of taking out the man first before torching the wife, he leaps onto Sakina, punching her in the face, followed by his usual berate, Don't scream, bitch, or I'll kill your kids. Where's your jewelry, bitch? Don't make a motherfucking sound, you understand, bitch? She responds with, I swear to God, I won't scream. Enraged, he yells, No, swear to Satan. Then goes about his business like clockwork. Beating, tied up her three-year-old child to his bed, repeated rapes until he's satisfied, then helps himself to their kitchen for a snack and leaves with his loot from the night's hall, leaving widowed Sakina handcuffed naked to her bed. Richard Ramirez was following all that the media had to say about him. He thought Satan was protecting him throughout his diabolical endeavors, but became more cautious with the sketch making its way around, numerous physical descriptions, and an increased reward of 80000 to turn him in. To escape the heat, he made his move to San Francisco Bay Area. On the 18th, he entered into the home of Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot sleeping 66-year-old Peter in the head with a 25 caliber handgun, and Barbara was assaulted and shot, left for dead. Richard took her lipstick and wrote Jack the Knife and a pentagram on the bedroom wall before leaving which was a reference to a Judas Priest song, The Ripper. If you're not familiar with the lyrics, they go. You'll soon shake with fear, never knowing if I'm near. I'm sly and I'm shameless, nocturnal and nameless, except for The Ripper, or if you like, Jack the Knife. When the ballistics and the shoe print evidence from the Los Angeles crime scenes match those found in the Pan crime scene, San Francisco's mayor, Diane Feinstein divulged this information on a televised press conference. This leak of information infuriated the detectives that were working the case, because Richard, watching everything related to his famed killing, and then that sets a light bulb in his head. Well, I've been wearing the same fucking shoes everywhere. Maybe I should get rid of these shoes. He then promptly tossed his Avia sneakers on the side of the Golden State Bridge before returning to Los Angeles a few days later. On the 24th, he hops into a stolen Toyota, heading toward Mission Viejo, where he found the Romero residence. Their 13-year-old son, James Romero III, happened to be awake when he heard Ramirez creeping outside the house. So James goes to wake up his parents to warn them that someone is outside, and then Ramirez flees, but not before James raced outside to get the color, make, model, and style of the car, and was able to also get a partial plate. The Romeros contacted the police department with the information that they had of the attempted theft. That same night after his first failed attempt, he broke into the home of Bill Carnes and his fiancée Carol Smith, sneaking through a back door and then goes into their bedroom. He had shot Bill three times and then woke Carol up to torment. You know who I am, he asked with a laugh. Carol, terrified, responds, no, who are you? He laughed again, I'm the Night Stalker. She responds, oh God, no. Don't say God, say Satan. Say you love Satan. And he slapped her across the face. She exclaims, I love Satan. He punched her across the face louder. I love Satan, please don't kill me, begging. He would go on to ransack the home, beat, rape, and sodomize her throughout the house. He demanded money, so she was able to find $400 in cash that Bill kept stashed in their bedroom. He then says, you know, this is all that saved you. This is all your life is worth. I would have killed you if it weren't for this money. Tell them the Night Stalker was here. She says, I will. Say you love Satan. Oh my God. (laughs) I love Satan. He chuckled and then left. 
Oh my god. Yeah. The fucking worst. Like, that's the cheesiest exit I've ever heard. Say you love Satan. Such a fucking douchebag. Richard Ramirez, being the experienced criminal that he was, always wore gloves. But in the heat of everything and sweating so much, he had taken off his gloves. When he ditched the Toyota, he wiped on the car as he usually did. But in this case, he removed his gloves and left fingerprints on the rearview mirror. When the vehicle was found, the print positively identified as belonging to Richard Ramirez, a 25-year-old drifter from Texas with a long rap sheet for arrests on traffic and illegal drug violations. The police released a mugshot of Ramirez from previous arrest on December 12th of 1984 auto theft, giving the Night Stalker a clear face to track down. In the press conference, they stated, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place for you to hide. With the walls closing in, the LAPD were tipped off to Felipe Solano, who was Richard's fence all of these years. He's the guy Richard would go to to cash out on everything that he stole from these homes. Solano admitted knowing Richard, that he brought in stuff for cash, but didn't know his full name or where he had lived. When the police raided Solano's apartment, it was just a goldmine of potential evidence that connects all of the Night Stalker cases. Another chilling account was from a woman named Donna that had known Richard for some time. She knew that he was breaking into people's homes and ripping people off. He would come in bragging about his loot, and she insisted that she had no idea that he was out killing people until the last few weeks she started to suspect. One day when the police composite flashes across the TV, he says, Hey Donna, do you think I'm the Night Stalker? She says, Hell no, Rick. You ain't got enough guts to kill anybody. Another time, he coyly says, Ain't you afraid to be alone with me in the house? Donna, what would you do if you broke into a home and found out people were home? Would you kill them? Or what would you do? She thought that he was kidding and stated that he always had a strange sense of humor. Oh yeah, so funny. (laughs) But after the pan murder, she brought it up to him that he fit the description of the Night Stalker to a T. He says, yeah, I know. That's why I had to leave LA, because they would think it was me. A few days later, Donna gets some common sense and then goes to the police. She turned in some of the jewelry that she was holding for him that he had brought back that he had stolen from one of these houses. And surprise, surprise, it connected to a previous case involving the Night Stalker back from late in May of that year. On August 30th of 1985, Lil Bitchy Richie took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother Robert. When he arrived, he tried to call his brother to meet him at the station, unbeknownst to him that at that very moment, his name and face is on every newspaper and TV across the country. His sister-in-law wanted nothing to do with her husband's demon little brother. After being stood up by his brother, he buys a ticket to go back home to downtown Los Angeles. In the morning, looking outside the bus windows, he sees police on the lookout for the night stalker trying to skip town, but not realizing that he could be just returning home. He avoids the police officers that were staking out in the bus terminal and dips into Mike's Liquor Store on Southtown Avenue to enjoy a coffee and a pastry. In the store, two elderly Latina women start staring at him. As he's paying, they're pointing at him saying, El Matador, which is Spanish for the killer. Confused, he keeps his head down, and then what does he see? On the front page of the paper, a crystal clear picture of his mugshot. 
Richard runs out of the store as the owner calls the police. Cops are coming from every direction. Everywhere he turned, people recognized him immediately as the killer that had been terrorizing them for months on end. Trying to find a way out, he made multiple attempts to pull women from their cars. Something he wasn't used to since everyone knew who he was, they fought back and even chased him down. Continuing his run on foot, jumping fences, and raced through neighborhood yards, there was an account of a couple having a cookout and then beating him with a spatula as he was passing by. With each failed attempt, the crowd growing bigger, saying El Matador. In another attempted carjacking, Richard tried to get into the wrong fucking car. This is my favorite part. <laughs> like, I hate to say that I have a favorite part of, like, a serial killer murder case, but... Yeah, this is the best part. This is the best part. So, Manuel heard his wife scream from her car in front of the house. So, he picks up a metal bar from his front gate, opened the door of the car, and then whacks Richard on top of the head. (laughs) Richard escapes from Manuel's grip, but he wasn't done yet. So, Manuel and this angry mob chases Richard down, and then he hits Richard again with the metal bar until little bitchy Richie goes down. Where the people of the town keep him down, just beating the shit out of him until the LAPD arrive. The community came together to take down the Night Stalker, free from his reign of terror forever. Later in jail, Richard Ramirez made the statement to the police, I want the electric chair. They should have shot me on the street. I did it, you know. The guys got me, the Night Stalker. Hey, let me have a gun to play Russian roulette. I'd rather die than spend the rest of my life in prison. Here's an idea. If you don't want to go to prison, don't do fucking things that are going to put you in prison. I know, that's wild of me to think, but... Outlandish. Mm-hmm. How dare you? Satan wouldn't allow it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Phil Halpin from the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office was chosen to lead the prosecution of such a high-profile case. Confident that they would get a conviction due to the large amount of evidence and eyewitness accounts, he felt Richard Ramirez deserved the gas chamber and didn't have a chance at the insanity plea since the crimes were too organized, planned, and executed to convince the jury that he was insane. The media wasn't the only ones that had flocked to the courtroom. He had a large amount of desperate women infatuated with him. He would look over to his groupies over his shoulders, giving them a smirk or a wave. So, quick side note on this, because sometimes... Your girl likes to get real fucking lost in the sauce. When I was looking into, like, interviews or, like, snippets from his time in the courtroom, there was, like, a shit mine on YouTube that are just thirst videos of Richard Ramirez where it's, like, little snippets of him or, like, photos with, like, photo collages and music over it. Like, cheesy, romantic, like... Yeah. Like, really, people? Like, really? As if, like, thirsting over Edward Cullen wasn't bad enough, like, this actual piece of shit, like, just be better. Be better. Be a better human, Be Be better. Just don't. My opinion. Sorry, not sorry. Change my mind. (laughs) As part of the investigation, Richard Ramirez had to be part of a lineup with five other men with a similar build and description to say his famous line, Don't look at me, bitch or I'll kill you. There were so many witnesses and victims that they had to do the lineup a second time. Almost all of them picked out Richard from the lineup 
Shaken from the experience of having to see or hear him again, since each had their own traumatic experience since the last time they did see him. Yeah, fucking PTSD, dude. Following the lineup, they were taken to a room that contained around 2,000 items that were confiscated from his fence that he sold all of their belongings to. And they would need to identify what their stolen items were. When Richard returned to court, he was angry about his representation. Public defender Alan Adeshek wanted Richard to try the insanity plea, but Richard wanted to plead guilty because he didn't want to denounce the deeds that he had done for Satan. In his search for new lawyers, he insisted on having two inexperienced lawyers, Arturo and Daniel Hernandez, represent him. To show his excitement, Richard draws a pentagram on his palm and shouted, Hail Satan! And this was just the beginning of his meaningless outbursts in court. There were also reports uh, of rumors in jail that Richard was planning to shoot the prosecutor with a gun that he intended to smuggle into the courtroom. So they had to increase the security for the courtroom and also implement intensive searches. It took until March 6th of 1986 for the preliminary hearing to take place. When the sheriff deputy described the mutilation of Maxine Zazara and the removal of her eyes, Richard let out a frightening, high-pitched cackle, like a little bitch boy that he was. While in jail, Richard had made statements to the deputy that he had killed 20 people in California, that he was a super criminal, that no one could catch him until he fucked up. He said that he had left one fingerprint behind, and that's how he got caught. He made the statement that he went to San Francisco and killed Peter Pan. I told one lady to give me all of her money. She said no, and I cut her and pulled her eyes out. The statements were admissible as evidence because they were voluntary and willingly given by Richard after being read his rights and after consulting with his attorneys. Richard Ramirez pled not guilty to the pile of charges against him. The case was transitioned to California's Supreme Court Judge Michael Tynan in November of 1986 after Richard's defense lawyers had continued to delay the trial as much as possible. They were in over their heads and had no idea what to do, so they were just trying to push it back to keep them afloat. After many reschedulings, the jury selection began on July 21st of 1988, more than two years after the preliminary hearing. The final jury was selected on January 10th of 1989. It was a very powerful case against Richard Ramirez, packed with not only physical evidence of fingerprints, footprints, guns, but also numerous eyewitness accounts that identified him as the one that had murdered, robbed, and sexually assaulted the people of Los Angeles and San Francisco. Two of the most brutal cases were witness accounts from survivors Somkid Kavanath and Sakina Abawath, that they were both widowed and endured gruesome torture and sexual assaults. So it was safe to say that the defense was rightfully fucked. Overwhelmed, Richard's representation, Daniel Hernandez admitted that they needed expert help. In comes Ray Clark, an experienced trial lawyer. His angle was to try and discredit or disprove the allegations and evidence that places Richard at the scene of the crimes. These attempts, for the most part, failed to put a dent in the case against Richard. There was one alibi given for Richard by his father and several family friends that Richard was in El Paso at the time of the Bell, Lang, and Kyle assaults. One photo was not going to bring down the entire case that was already built up against Richard. 
Also, another aspect they tried to leverage was one of the jurors, Cynthia Hayden, was one of these impressionable groupies. They were sure that she wouldn't convict her crush, Richard Ramirez, for these heinous crimes. But on September 20th, they had reached a unanimous decision that Richard Ramirez was guilty on every one of the 46 counts against him. On the day of sentencing, Richard insisted on reading a statement he had prepared. And I will read it as such. Read it like a douchebag. You don't understand me. (laughs) (laughs) You're not expected to. You are not capable. I am beyond your existence. Or experience. (laughs) I can't read it like that. That's so bad. Okay. You don't understand me. You're not expected to. You are not capable. I am beyond your experience. I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in all of us. I don't believe in hypocritical, moralistic dogma of this so-called civilized society. You maggots make me sick. Hypocrites, one and all, I don't need to hear all of society's rationalizations. I've heard them all before. Legions of the night. I'm sorry, this part is so... It's so stupid. Stupid. Legions of the night. Night breed. Repeat, not the errors of the night prowler, and show no mercy. The judge responded by convicting 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. On October 3rd, they had voted for the death penalty, and on November 7th of 1989, he was sentenced to die in a gas chamber. When asked for a statement, Richard Ramirez had told reporters, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Also, fun fact. The trial cost $1.8 million, which for the time made it the most expensive in history of California until surpassed by O.J. Simpson in 1994. During his widely covered trial, Richard gained a lot of sympathizers and fans who started writing him letters and also visited him while he was in prison. His biggest fan would be Doreen, who in 1985 started writing him letters during his incarceration. According to reports, she wrote him nearly 75 letters while he was imprisoned, and the two started seeing each other regularly. Sources state that she had visited him in prison around four times a week. In 1988, he had proposed to her, and the two were eventually married in 1996 at California's San Quentin State Prison. During their relationship, she had become a defender against his execution. She kept mentioning publicly that she would commit suicide if he was ever executed. And, like, I also don't understand, like, this whole entire thing because, like, can you imagine the smell? Well, he did get, uh, new teeth. He did get new teeth. Whenever he went in? It's the first thing he did when he went into fucking prison. Yep. Got new fucking teeth. Our taxpayer dollars. Like, why uh, couldn't it? We yeah. should have just fucking ripped them all out and then just Called it fucking. a fucking day. Mm-hmm. Ramirez supporters also started appealing to reduce his convictions and remove his death sentence. This caused a long delay in his execution due to the long process of appeals in the California Supreme Court. Doreen also began appearing in television interviews and shows, including the show Biography, which covered the story of the Night Stalker. She also participated in a documentary entitled THS investigates love behind bars. 
and she used her position as an editor to start writing about her husband, even writing a biography entitled Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Despite being a strong advocate for Richard and publicly opposing his execution, things eventually became silent. According to reports, the two had separated, although the cause of the separation was unknown. Some sources state that the separation came after Richard's first victim, the nine-year-old girl, was specifically connected to him. Plus, his lack of remorse for any of his actions possibly became the end to their relationship. Other reports stated it was because Richard contracted the disease that would kill him, and that the two decided to separate to spare her from what was to come. The true reason was never released. He died from complications of B-cell lymphoma, a form of blood cancer affecting the lymph nodes, and passed away in 2013 at the Marin General Hospital. He was also affected by the substance abuse and chronic hepatitis C viral infection. He had died at the age of 53 years old, having been on death row for more than 23 years, with some stating that he would have been 70 years old before his execution would have ever been carried out due to the lengthy California appeals process. So, I know it's been a long, gruesome journey. The life and death of Richard Ramirez and our two-parter. Our first serial killer two-parter. Mm-hmm. At least he got hunted down. At least the <laughs> yeah. fucking city came together. That was, that was cute. That was That's a nice little story. The best part, that they literally all rallied together to beat the shit out of this man. Oh, for sure. And like even Which the... was the least of what he deserved. Honestly. Oh, definitely. So, in honor of our first serial killer covered on the Creepy Burrito, make sure you stop in on our Facebook page, The Creepy Burrito, to see the details we're dropping tomorrow on our killer giveaway. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. 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 <laughs> Renee, where else can they hit us up at? They can also hit us up at Instagram and Twitter at, you guessed it, the creepy burrito. Feel free to email us at thecreepyburrito at gmail.com. And don't forget, you can also slide into those Facebook DMs. Mm, the dumbs. The dumbs. <laughs> Do you want to listen to um, or mm? <laughs> The prindle. And don't forget to hop that pretty ass over to either Facebook or iTunes and leave us a sweet-ass review. And on that note... While Richard is inside, Maria's out. Maria's outside. (laughs) (laughs) And they're not together. Fuck, Shelby. I know. Okay, give me a second. (laughs) Fuck this. I can do this sentence. While Richard is inside, Maria is outside. outside. (laughs) And here's the gunshot from Richard inside. (laughs) (laughs) I, I can't.